Last week, uh, we began um, a, a series in the book of Judges, um, part of the Old Testament um, that uh, is kind of a, quite a challenge, really, as, as we read together. And, um, you know, we talked about the reasons for doing that, um, but uh, last week we just began with the introduction, and I want to just follow through um, reading with you from chapter 2 and verse 6. Uh, through to the beginning of chapter 3. Just to put it into a context for you, this is a story of the people of God when they've, uh, so the, the big picture is they were uh, sort of enslaved in Egypt, they were taken out of the promised land, they went into uh, the wilderness and then they reached the promised land, taken out of Egypt into the promised land, and uh, they got into the promised land and Joshua led them, and then they had the difficulty of settling into a new place. And what they found, and what the story of the book of Judges is, is that the people of God found it easier to be like everybody else than it was to be what they were meant to be, which was an image of their creator God. And what God would do is from, uh, periodically, he would raise up people who would be able to lead them, who would uh, save them, deliver them, the judges. And uh, the story of that book is indeed that. Excellent, I don't know. Anyway. Last week, we, we introduced the, the concepts, and this week, I want to uh, read from verse 6. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who'd seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnaheres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that, whole generation had been gathered up to their ancestors. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he'd done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and they served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who'd brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtaroths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. And whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. And then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they wouldn't listen to the judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their ancestors, they quickly turned from following the way of the Lord's, uh, the way of their ancestors, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. And whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and he saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, because this nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors and hasn't listened to me, I'll no longer drive um, out before them 
any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I'll use them to test Israel and see whether they'll keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He didn't drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. And then chapter 3 simply outlines the nations that they had to live with. Just one thing to say, by the way, is that um, on Wednesday, because this is the third Wednesday of the month, um, there's an evening uh, where if you are interested in sort of going deeper into Scripture and thinking more specifically about, particularly about the book of Judges, then at 7.30 in the Vine, the coffee shop that Maggie was speaking about earlier, we're going to have a, a Bible study, a, a sort of a going deeper session that I'll be leading at 7.30 on Wednesday evening in the Vine. This time of year, I always... Um, I've got a memory of uh, being a child, and uh, in our family, we had, uh, we had an Auntie Barbara. She was one of those aunties that wasn't really an auntie at all, but she was kind of like an adopted auntie. I guess many of us have had those sorts of uh, relationships. She was uh, a, midwife, uh, a midwife who worked down in one of the, vi- in the villages in Norfolk, and as a family, Around this time of year, we'd go down and stay with her and her sister in the north coast of Norfolk. And some of you will remember that the 1960s and the 1970s in the summers, the summers were always sunny. The days were always great. It never rained. You were always on the beach. Those of you that are too young to remember the 1960s and 70s, let us assure you it was always like that in Britain, at least in my memory. And all the hedgerows had blackberries. And uh, because our family didn't have that much money, that was a good day out uh, to go blackberry picking. And you just filled your buckets with blackberries. And it was great. And it's a very, very vivid memory. A few years later, um, many years later and a few years ago, me and Maggie, we went down to visit my Auntie Barbara, who was now in her 90s and very frail. And she was suffering from Alzheimer's and in a care home. And uh, actually, in retrospect, I'm not sure this was a great thing, but they allowed us to take her out. I don't, they didn't really know who we were, but I, I don't know. We must have looked honest. And we wandered around with Auntie Barbara, not very far and very slowly because she was quite frail. But we just wandered around with her for a while. And every five minutes, she'd turn to us and go, tell me again, who are you? And we'd explain who we were, and then we'd talk about the things that we could see, and then she'd stop, and five minutes later, tell me again, who are you? And I'd explain again, and we would go on like that. Well, in time, she went to be with the Lord, but it was kind of like a mixture of emotion. She experienced what many people experience, is that kind of, all the pieces of her life had just been like disconnected. She couldn't make sense of how it all fitted together. She was actually quite happy, but living in a permanent now. That window of five minutes where she could hold who you were, but then it wouldn't stay. So every five minutes had to be reminded, who are you and who are you to me? And how does this connect? It's like all these jigsaw pieces just disconnected for her. 
And I was thinking about Auntie Barbara when, during the week, for various reasons, but I was particularly thinking about her when I was reading this passage. Because what seems to have happened, what the narrator is telling us happened, is, well, in verse 10. Can you just push the slide on for me, please? In verse 10, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he'd done for Israel. It's kind of a whole generation had lost their story. They'd forgotten. They were living in a permanent now. No past. It's kind of like when you read that and you say they'd forgotten the generations. They didn't know the previous generation. What, what had they forgotten? Well, this is what they'd forgotten. They'd forgotten Abraham. The person to whom God had promised, I'm going to take you and make you into a great nation. They'd forgotten Moses who brought them out of slavery. They'd forgotten the exodus, that remarkable miracle. They'd forgotten the 40 years in the wilderness where God provided for them. They'd forgotten Joshua, the guy who took them into the promised land. They'd forgotten it. And it's almost like they're going, tell me again. Not who are you, but who are we? It's like they just lost it and they couldn't connect. You see, when you forget the big story, you have no past and you also have no future. My poor old Auntie Barbara couldn't remember who I was. The little boy that she lavished so much love on just lost to her. And therefore she couldn't know who she was. Couldn't remember the past, had no concept of a future, just permanent now. And in a sense, what the Israelites were suffering was this rusted over, this total moment of almost, and I, I don't say it lightly, but almost an Alzheimer's moment of, I don't know how the big picture works anymore. And it's easy to be the people of God and you lose your place in the big story. When you forget what God has done, everything becomes, but God, is God able to be trusted now? When you forget what God has done in your own life, it's like, I don't know if he's going to be able to do it now. When you get that amnesia that goes, I can't believe that God's going to come through again, it's because you've lost the big story. It's what we do with children, isn't it? It's what's happening right now out there. We want them to know the stories. Not just so they might know the stories, the Bible stories and colour them in well. What we want is you need to know the God who can be trusted. That's why we tell them the biblical story. That's why we try to do it with our own children. That's the thing that we're passing down to them. We want you to know who God is and who you are because one day you will come up into a situation and you will wonder, is he able to do it now? And if you've forgotten the big story, you lose it. You push it on for me, I think for some reason it's not connecting. And so what they did, verse 12 and 13, 
They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and they served Baal and the Ashtaroths. Now these two little figurines are the figures that were found in archaeological digs from this time. And the the guy on the right here, that's Baal. And uh, originally he would have had a spear in his hand. We know that because there are archaeological digs where the, the relief you know, like they've carved it in, and you can see Baal with the, the spear. Because Baal was the one that you trusted for warfare. Baal was the, the god who kind of held that under control. So if you were nervous about warfare, if you were nervous about being attacked, what was happening in the world at the time, they'd say, well, Baal's the one you go and offer to. He's the one that will keep you safe. And the the female figure is the Ashtaroth, or Astarte, which again, same same period, but you can, just by looking at her, you might be able to imagine all that she would represent. She's got wide hips. She's a, a goddess of fertility. How will we, our crops, be uh safe for another year. We'll give your offerings to this goddess. And those two, uh, those two uh, figurines are in the French uh, museum, the Louvre Museum, so you can actually go and see them. But in other words, I'm, I'm just wanting to sort of emphasize to you, this is not, you, you, you're almost in touching reach of what was going on here. Baal and Ashtaroth. Why would you You who've been told that you've been made in the image of God. You who've been told that God has called you to be the people for his own sake. You who've been told that God has made a covenant with you, that he will never let you go. You that have been given the the history of Exodus, the history of a law, the history of becoming a people, the history of remarkable, miraculous provision. Why would you go after this? Well, you might go after this if you've lost confidence that in this new place, the God, the God you've known works. You might look at your neighbors and go, well, they seem to be doing okay. And to be honest, if Baal can keep us safe, let's go with Baal. And if Astarte, if she can make sure that my family are prosperous and my, my wife is fertile and The family line will go down. Let's go with her. In other words, if it works for other people, let's try it for ourselves. They traded in the promise of God for the promises that the gods around them made. It's the oldest story in the book, literally. God can't be trusted. That's why you go for Baal. That's why you go for Astarte. Now, we don't have gods like that no more. They're in museums. And it's easy to look at them and go, well, what a primitive people. But you and I both know we pick up the habits of the people we're with and the way they see the world and the way we understand control happens of the world, the way we see safety happens in the world. And it's easy to have the same mind. The third thing I want to say, and the final thing I want to say, really, 
is it's worth looking at what God does. Verse, uh, verse 14. Let me just read it again. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to to defeat them, just as he sworn to them. They were in great distress. And then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of their raiders. It's interesting because what you're reading here, and and I, I kind of alluded to it last week, is that in this sort of world where people did fight, it wasn't God's always on your side no matter what. Sometimes these people found that God was actually fighting them. God was angry with his own people. It's not a capricious anger. It's not an anger that you can't trust. Um, It's probably closer to this. Those of you that are married, if your partner just started to become unfaithful to you and was on the verge of leaving leaving you, would you just shrug your shoulder and go, oh, well, never mind, eh? You would be angry. You'd be angry because of love. You'd be angry because of history. You'd be angry because of betrayal. You wouldn't just shrug your shoulder. In fact, if your partner thought he really doesn't, he wouldn't, he wouldn't notice if I left and went with someone else. You could be forgiven for thinking this relationship's never been that great in the first place. If your adult children get hooked on drugs, and this happens, doesn't it? And they come to you and ask you for money. Are you going to give it them? Knowing it's going to go straight to the dealer. If they come and ask, can I stay in your house? And when you're looking all around the house, you're seeing the, the, the needles down the side of the settees. At what point would you say, you need to leave? It'd be difficult, wouldn't it? It would be difficult. Would you turn your kids out? Or would you just give them exactly what they wanted? Would you love for them... Would your love for them say, just do what you want, I don't mind? Or would you fight? Would you fight because you love them? Would you be angry because you could see what they're doing? Would you go after them so they would know that they need to change? And when you read about the Lord being angry and the Lord fighting, it's that passionate God who goes I'm not going to let you go now this is where it links in with what you said right at the beginning do you know when, when you started reading it that that little conversation that you, that piece you presented at the beginning Arthur really didn't go where I expected I was never if, I, if you've asked me to put money on it I would have never put money on you going to Song of Solomon but it's a brilliant piece of the passionate God who comes in that passage leaping over the hills towards you as a lover but you've still got God as a lover here. It's the same God. It's not God's nice and he, you know, he's either nice or nasty. God's always the lover who pursues us, who will fight for us, who, if it comes to it, will fight us. 
And that's kind of like more difficult to think then. How does that work out? Well, in Hebrews, in the book of the New Testament Hebrews, when they're trying to work it out, he'll, the writer will say, what sort of father? What sort of father never disciplines a child? If you'd never known the guidance and the discipline of father, might you think you were illegitimate? Might you think you were someone else's? And the writer to Hebrews goes, good fathers know when to draw the line. And this is really difficult to, to say, and it's, much, it's, it's too difficult to be a blunt instrument for everybody. But there are some times when part of our own discernment is growing as disciples and going, I'm in a really tough moment here. All right, when you go through those tough moments, and sometimes it's like, okay, so why am I in this really difficult position right now? And overarching all of it is this, that God is for us. But on the tough days, it could well be that we've got ourselves into a mess, and God is fighting for us, and sometimes even wrestling with us, to get our attention Some of us pray the best when we're in need, don't we? Some of us pray the best when we're in need. And God says, I won't give up on you because he's the passionate God. The God who comes close. The God who says, trust me. The God who says, you're known. The God who saves us from our own fears. A people who'd forgotten people who followed the other gods, just the same thought patterns as everybody else. And a God who says, I won't let you go. I won't let you go. Can you just put the last slide up for me? Someone said this, this is a story we're held by, created free, fallen in fear, redeemed by our, beyond our wildest expectations. How does God do that for us? Well, the passionate God, as the Bible unfolds, is the God who sends his son, who dies on a cross and rises from the dead, that we might be his. So when we talk about, don't forget your big story, in a sense, and it's, you know, whatever the situation is this morning, it's like, well, what story am I living in? I'm living in a story of creation. I'm living in a story where I don't need to be living in fear because I've been redeemed beyond my wildest expectations by the death of Jesus. I've got a different story. But if you lose that story, it'll be every time it'll be, but can God do it now? Can God do it now? Can God do it? Who are you? Tell me again. And part of this ongoing life of being a disciple of Jesus together is that we remind each other of the big story. That's why we gather together. One of the reasons we gather together here. It's why, it's why we never really go, you know, we keep circling around the cross and resurrection. Because tomorrow morning, something's going to hit and it'll be, is God here with me? And the cross and resurrection says, don't forget the big story. It's why we gather together. It's why when Ian begins singing in the morning service, 
you would not be unusual to think, I don't feel like that. (laughs) And Ian is too polite on the whole to say, it doesn't matter what you feel. We come in and we're brought into a bigger story. I am free for eternity. And you go, I don't feel it. Doesn't matter. Come and sing the words that are given to you. You come and listen to someone like me reading from a bit of the Bible that you go, oh, I don't want to read that. Tough. With, you know, respect. (laughs) (laughs) We come in and we're reminded of the big story. It's why you have to pray on your own. And, uh, you know, there's no way around this, really, is there? It's kind of like, you know, in every area of your life, if you want to get fit, you're going to have to get off the couch. (laughs) All right? At some stage, you're going to have to get off the couch. So a summer of watching the Olympics is not going to get you fit. (laughs) All right? (laughs) And so we have to pray. And we pray on our own and we learn to pray. Because actually otherwise I'll always be worried that God's not going to come through this time. But a life of prayer develops this sense of I know what the big story is. And it's why you learn to read the Bible on your own. Because it's not enough just to have the name I need to keep reminding myself of the bigger story that I belong to. Because this God, our God, is a wild, passionate God for us. This God, our God, is trustworthy. This God, our God, wants to make us into his own people, a colony of heaven in the the land of death. That's what it means to be the church of Jesus. Because our God is passionate, not just about us, but about his whole world. And I want that. I want to know that God. Not the Baal and the Astarte, the God I can use. But the God who is passionate for me. The narrator, he says, God kept sending them judges who saved them, but they kept forgetting. God, help us to remember.